This is Big Talk, Michael Glab here. My guest this week in the studio, Daniel Bingham. He's a candidate for City Council District 2 seat. Daniel, thanks for being on Big Talk. Thanks for having me. Daniel is running in the most contested race in this year's municipal election. I think so. Uh, he's going against incumbent Dorothy Granger. There's another challenger, Sue Scambaluri. And in fact, there's a Republican running unopposed in his primary, Andrew Gunther. Four people for this seat. Makes it interesting. This is your first time yes. running for office. Uh, does it worry you that you've got all these people in? Anything can happen in a three-way race. You're a software engineer and a community activist. I notice here you're a former board president of uh, Bloomington Cooperative Living. Mm-hmm. You also served as a board member, the co-chair of the City of Bloomington Innovation Task Force Initiative. Mm -hmm. Alongside Daryl Nair. Uh, that was an interesting experience. You also served on John Hamilton's transition team. Mm -hmm. We're going to go through all of this, but first let's start with the basics. Your family moved to town when you were three years old. Yep. I don't really remember anywhere else. Where did they come from? I, we moved from Hartford, I believe. I'm not... My dad grew up in Massachusetts. My mom kind of grew up all over the place. Uh -huh. um, they came here for a job with IU. So now you're here. Uh, you went to Bloomington High School South. Yep. Then you went to New York State for college. Went to Skidmore College. I got a double major in physics and computer science. Why physics and computer science? Were you a geeky kid? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I wanted to be an aerospace engineer. That's why oh, really? I went for physics. Um, I learned, I've, I've been writing code since I was 12 years old. I mean, I, I, in high school, kind of ignored my classes to work on, it's called a multi-user dungeon. It's a text-based computer game. It was based on Lord of the Rings. It's a virtual world similar to World of Warcraft. Um, and I, I taught myself to code that way all through high school. But I really wanted to be an aerospace engineer. I wanted to go work at NASA. Through the course of, of taking physics classes at Skidmore, I realized that to be really good at physics and and physical engineering, you have to be able to think in three dimensions. And I'm much more of a, I, I do better with, with language um, mm. than I do with visual spatial things. So I struggled with physics. I, I got the degree with, you know, decent grades, but not great grades. And I really what I learned is that I didn't want to keep focusing on it. Did you learn C? Programming language? Yeah. yeah, that's what I taught myself when I was 13. Yeah. With some help. I mean, I went oh, to sure. like computer camps, but then, yeah, when I wasn't Working on my homework, I was usually working on code. That's hard stuff. It was fun. Especially for an old bat like me. It was fun. It was fun to, to build an entire virtual world. It was incredibly, it, it's incredibly freeing to have that, that kind of power at your fingertips. So then after college, you went and you taught science in Thailand. How did you work that out? Well, I actually worked at GE for a year first. GE commuting first. Yeah, in Schenectady, one of their first uh, campuses, I think. I was working on a, a program that did simulation of electric grids so that companies could trade stock in it. It was like this old thing written in Fortran. Um, <laughs> and we were working on the, a data management tool for it, which was written in Java by engineers who knew Fortran. So that was a mess. Did you clean that up? <laughs> Every coder would say yes, but who knows? <laughs> that, that's a question for those who came after me. 
after that, I went to teach science in Thailand, and I actually followed my girlfriend of the time who really wanted to travel. I don't really have the travel bug as much. Uh-huh. Uh, and as it turned out, that I spent six months there, learned that I don't belong in the tropics. Um, I'm much more of a temperate person. So I'm who are you teaching? Thai middle schoolers, for the most part. It was a Thai school. It was an English immersion program in a, I think it was a public school, but I could be wrong. But it was it was mostly taught by people like you know my partner and I at the time who were just traveling and had gotten TEFL certificates and then were hired off the street, essentially. Did you just, know to speak the language? No. I learned a few phrases in it, but it was it, the classes were all taught in English, and there were students who had varying degrees of, you know, for everything from not speaking a word of English to fluent. And it was just, it was immersion. But it was very much, it was, I mean, we, we came in, we did an interview. They asked, you know, they said, oh, you've got a physics degree. I said, yeah, you can teach science. I said, potentially. And they said, great, you're hired. But there was no curriculum. So I sort of worked with what the person who came before me had devised and then also just had to come up with a lot of stuff myself. So, and then I said, I don't belong in the tropics. I'm not doing these kids any favors. I don't belong here. Where'd you go after that? I came home. And I, home being home being Bloomington. And that was 2010. Yep. What did you have here that you were coming back to? <laughs> my parents. Your parents. I did the classic millennial thing. I crash landed uh, <laughs> my parents' place and picked myself back up. I mean, we'd spent all our money getting to Thailand, essentially. Right. Um, so I got a remote software engineering job, not the one I have today, and uh, kind of put myself back together. Tried my hand briefly at a software startup. Learned that you know. I've done that thing where I've tried a lot of things and kind of failed at a few of them and learned through doing that what does and doesn't work for me. Learned from failure a little bit. So I tried a software startup, realized that I'm not good at so like starting a software business from scratch was not my forte, at least not then. And then got a software engineering job, had that for about a year, left it to try my hand at some other things. Like I spent some time cooking for Feast actually, like two months Feast. Yeah. Okay. Okay. They were wonderful, but I, I, you know, I had no experience. Walked in as a as a chef, and then also got realized after two months that seven dollars an hour. How can anybody survive on that? Went back to got another software job. Kept that one for two years, uh, and then came to Saros, where I've been for the last four and a half, and now I'm a lead at Saros. Now that's Saros, and that is a uh, startup content marketing company. Yes. My title is DevOps Lead. So DevOps is, it's basically we manage the infrastructure, we manage what's called the, the continuous integration pipeline. And so it's, it's, the way we, it's the way the software is deployed. So yeah. when we write new code, we need to release it onto the servers, we need to manage the cloud infrastructure in AWS, uh, and the team that I lead is the team that does all that. Now, the question has to be asked in this day and age, do you work there or do you work anywhere? I work remotely. You work remotely. The company's based in New York City. Uh-huh. I work from home. Now, it's, it could be the kind of company that could be located in Dimension Mill? Uh, potentially, but honestly, I've been working remotely, yeah. not just at this company, but the two before it. Yeah. So I've been, I've been working remotely for, I don't know, basically since I got back to Bloomington, except yeah. for those stints and, and sort of other fields. You know, it, knowledge work, the tools are all there to do it remotely. And it's actually a lot, it's cheaper for the company. It's a lot more sustainable because you're not commuting. You don't have to go anywhere. You can work from home. It's actually, 
for people, for, for extroverts, it doesn't work as well. But for people who are sort of more towards the introvert side, which I am, uh-huh. it works great because you've got control of your environment. You you can talk to people when you need to. But right. when you need that focus, you know, open office plans are horrible. They destroy focus. They're actually really stressful. Um, there's research that backs that up. So, you know, you have control of your environment. You can really dig in and focus on things. Now, do you have to uh, be extraordinarily disciplined to work from your home or wherever you work. You could work at a coffee house Mm -hmm. if you wanted. It definitely takes discipline and self-motivation. So do you have a specific time that you say, okay, I'm at the desk now? To some degree, the harder part is having a time when you say, I'm not at the desk now. Uh Aha. Your neighborhood is Waterman. Yes. A little bit nearish, the Trades District. A mile and some. About a mile away. Yeah, a mile and change. But the trades district, as it grows, could affect your neighborhood. It could. Um, and, and not so my neighborhood is one of the, the lowest income neighborhoods in the city, but also um, Maple Heights, the neighborhood sort of around 11th and 12th, uh-huh. is even closer and is another low income neighborhood. And they're both among the last affordable neighborhoods in the city. Right. Maple Heights especially. I mean, it's right there. So it's it's ground zero if the if the trades district goes in and suddenly there are a whole bunch of jobs centered on that tech jobs that are you know good paying tech jobs that are centered on that spot a lot of those people are probably going to look for housing in nearby neighborhoods so and some look of that for those great bargains which will drive up prices and potentially gentrify the neighborhoods and push people out right both of those neighborhoods are in district two no neither of them are neither. Waterman, so Waterman's weird. Uh, District 2 is a little weird, too. It, District 2 is everything basically north of 17th, and then it comes down and it grabs these pockets. And my single block of Waterman is in one of those pockets. You're kidding. So the rest of Waterman from Spring Street all the way to 8th is District 1, and then my block between Spring Street and Valhalla Memorial Gardens is District 2. I understand that one of uh, your passions is gardening. It is, yeah. I got really into to permaculture for a while. I, I don't call myself a permaculturist anymore because I think there are some really valid criticisms of the permaculture movement, huh. but there's also a lot of really good ideas in it. Yeah. And it's basically this move, this idea that we could garden and farm, modeling it after nature, and in that way create a system of growing food that doesn't displace habitat, but instead acts as habitat. Huh. And there's another term for, for that explicitly, which is agroecology, which I think is better. The agroecology movement tends to be – the permaculture movement draws from a lot of sources, and there's a lot of good stuff in there, but it tends to get a little unmoored from science at times. Agroecology is, like, directly grounded in science. As far as I know, in the Waterman neighborhood, there's a cooperative living community? Yes. There – sort of. So there's Dandelion Village, um, which I was a part of, okay. which was a spin-out of Bloomington Cooperative Living, actually, before I got involved with Bloomington Cooperative Living. Does this have anything to do with what you've just been talking about, permaculture? To some degree, yeah. It, was, it, it definitely drew from permaculture. There were definitely permaculturists involved in it. Uh-huh. I was one of them at the time. Uh-huh. And it, it, it was more focused on natural building and exploring mm-hmm. the possibilities of natural building. And so it was, it, it got a PUD, uh, it got permission to, to do 10 naturally built, self-built, uh, small footprint homes, 400 square foot footprint, and then a, a cooperative 
living building that would have 15 bedrooms in it, common house. And that would be the equivalent of one property? Mm-hmm. Uh, they were they had it parceled out. I think the original plan was to sell parcels. So it was it was a. I'm not really sure what. It, it never quite got a structure figured out. Ah. So there was you know some idea about there was debate. I mean right up until the end. It and it's it's sort of it's not dead, but it's definitely. Is it breathing? Sort of. Sort of. It might okay. be resurrected. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Um. I kind of hope it will be. I really hope it will be. Now, another of your passions is cooperative living, yes. cooperative housing, and sustainability. Mm-hmm. And your, uh, as we say, your platforms uh, deal with a lot of that. We're going to talk about your platform issues Monday during the feature, Big Talk Extra, Daily Local News. We'll get to that, but as I say, we're going to learn more about you so I, I came to permaculture and sustainability and really most of my activism through the local food movement. Uh-huh. So after I graduated, and the last couple of years of college, I got really into local food and cooking for myself and trying to eat sustainably and healthily. And that kind of led into learning about permaculture and the ideas about agroecology and, and sort of designing agriculture that looks and acts like nature. And through that, I mean, I'd always been aware, I'd always been an environmentalist, but, you know, when I was a, an idealistic wannabe aerospace engineer, I was like, oh, well, we'll solve environmentalism by colonizing outer space, which, of oh, course, yeah. as I learned about the actual physics there, it became apparent eventually that that is not a solution we can count on. There's no way that the, the physics, the energy balances, we cannot get people enough people off the planet. We got to save the one we've got. Colonizing right. space can be another adventure, but it's not going to rescue us from our problems here. That's but, an interesting thing to know because a lot of people have that in the back of their mind that if the uh, if the human race is going to succeed, it's probably going to succeed somewhere else. We may yet succeed somewhere else, and I really hope we do. That's an adventure I'd still love to see happen in my lifetime. But just the way that's – if that happens, the way it's going to happen is a handful of us are going to go and start anew. Right. We are not going to be able to migrate people en masse. And it's not going to be next week. No. <laughs> my, it probably it may not be in my lifetime. I mean, right. just the energies involved, like the, 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 the cost to get even just like a kilogram into outer space with the technologies we have. And the possibilities for new technologies, are, you're, you're, you're pushing up against the limits of physics to, to push that boundary. You've so, got to get there. Yeah. You read a report in October from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Now, this report, as far as I can see, said the world must cut its carbon emissions at least 45% by the year 2030. Hey, that's only 11 years off. Mm -hmm. And 100% by 2050. And what's that? 31 years off. Mm -hmm. 100%. Boy, that's that's a tall order. Yep. This inspired you to run. Yeah, so... You know, I've been an activist for sustainability for a long time. And when Mayor Hamilton ran in, was it 2015? Um, yes. I actually wrote a, a blog post supporting him and, and saying that, you know, quoting numbers I had, had read that about climate change and how much we have to do and how quickly we have to act, basically saying, we've got to do big things. We need a mayor who will do big things and arguing that from among the choices we had, Mayor Hamilton was the most likely to do that. 
so I've been paying attention to this for for years and sort of watching this. And I'd sort of, I you know, I feel like we all it's such an it's such an enormous thing just sort of looming in the distance that we all I feel like tune into it a little bit and then have to tune out. Yeah. You know, you got to kind of you can tune into it for a moment and then it gets really overwhelming really fast as an individual with very little power. And at a certain point, you so I I did that. I tuned in and pushed really hard and sort of tuned out a little bit. And There's just, a frustration level. Yeah. Um, and, and sort of went back to life and, you know, living life and trying to get my family on a good footing and do my garden, get my garden in place and, and you know, engage, really dug into to the stuff I was doing in Bloomington Cooperative Living. And then this report came out in October. And at the time, I, you know, I'd been showing up to council periodically to push for this issue or that issue when it came up and advocate for things. But I'd, I'd shown up for something. Uh, it ha- the garage discussion was starting at around the same time as this report came out. And I showed up for a completely different reason. I, there was something else that was on the docket that I'd been asked to speak on from my you know experience of Bloomington Cooperative Living and Affordable Housing Advocacy. Mm-hmm. Um, but so I was sitting there while the garage came up and a friend of mine who was sitting next to me said, hey, this makes no sense. And at the time I was thinking, oh great, a, new, a bigger garage, wonderful. Maybe we can get rid of some on-street parking and replace it with bike lanes. Yeah. And this friend was like, did you see the IPCC report? This makes zero sense. And I, I'd seen it go by and I'd seen the headlines, but you know, it's, it's that whole thing of the, you've been seeing those headlines for forever. Right. And they've been increasingly alarming. And at a certain point you, you feel powerless. Yeah. But I went and read it and it's really, Climate push, do, engaging in climate activism, trying to en- get people to engage with it has been so hard because you have the body of scientists sort of saying, hey, it's bad, hey, it's bad, we've got to act, we've got to act, we've got to act. And the political community has been so slow to react to that and pick up to it. And some people have just been denying it entirely right. um, here in the States. Uh, but there's always been this sort of undercurrent of, oh, well, that's one study. Or, oh, well, that's just the extreme scientists. Or, oh, well, that's just, you know, those alarmists. You know, you could always go and look at the the IPCC reports, and they would be more comforting. They'd be like, oh, well, we're only seeing, you know, one to three meters of sea level rise by 2100. We've got time. When you say IPCC, you're again saying the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Right, which is the UN body which studies climate change. So, So this is, you know, top scientists, top policy analysts from around the world it's very conservative in the sense of being reserved, careful, cautious. They don't make alarmist statements. They're so, not chicken littles. No. So when they come out and they say, we need a World War II level mobilization, world global, global World War II level mobilization. I mean, what they're saying there- Industry, con- uh, Across the board, every yeah. sector of the economy. Right. What, countries rationed during World War II. Right. Bread, food, flour, you know, metal, rubber, it was rationed. Every dollar of economic activity was bent toward winning that war. And pretty much all of the countries that were engaged in it. And they are saying we need that level of mobilization to cut emissions. And this is a UN body. These are people not prone to alarmist statements who actually have a lot of pressure, political pressure, not to make alarmist statements, not to upset the balance of the world. They are sitting there saying, drop everything, solve climate change now. Or else. Yeah, or else, or else we face catastrophic consequences. And that's the word they used. Here's a quote from you. We can't wait any longer. We can't. Our backs are to the wall. We are in a bus that is about to go careening over a cliff. We can slam on the brakes and try to turn. But honestly, the IPCC, they have been releasing reports on climate change for decades, you know, basically since we, we learned about it. 
every time history has caught up with their predictions, they have underestimated it because they are so conservative and so reserved. So there are a lot of scientists out there, they don't take into account all manner of feedback loops that could be triggered by climate change because the research is not yet there to support that we are triggering them. Yeah. So it's a maybe that will trigger them. It's a risk, but they're not taking that risk into account. So if you look at the research, there is there are all number of studies from really well-established, well-respected scientists who have identified all kinds of potential feedback loops we could trigger. And they, if they will say that they are seeing the evidence that we are triggering them. Mm -hmm. And if those feedback loops kick in, it's a lot worse than this. Potentially, like we are potentially, it's, it's very real that the bus might already be careening over the cliff. Yeah. But we have to act as if it's not. And we have to do everything, like we owe it to the next generation to do everything we can to keep it from going over that cliff to, uh, until the moment we know that it's going over no, no matter what. Daniel, I'm just a schmo who lives in Bloomington. What can I do? A lot, actually. There's a lot of stuff that we can do on the local level. Um, it is overwhelming when you dig into the numbers, and I did that. I went and found our 2016 emissions report that we did, emissions um, inventory, and I went through it and, and looked at where our emissions are as calculated by, I think it was, um, the Commission on Sustainability. For the city of Bloomington. For the city of Bloomington. So it's mostly grid electricity mm -hmm. because Indiana's grid is... is awful it's, ah. it's heavily coal i mean it's so bad that if you're driving an electric car charged from the grid your emissions will be worse than a hybrid electric huh. powered partly by gas yeah, that's yeah. how bad our grid is no kidding so when you look at it like 80 percent of our emissions are grid-based electricity we can put solar panels on people's houses we can we can create a fund we can pour money into it we can make it need-based to stretch it as far as we can go you know have people apply to it have them express their need give them as much as they need just to get the panels on their on their roof, pump them out as fast as we can um, just to displace that, that electricity down the grid. Does the city have an incentive program for solar panels on homes? A couple, but they are several orders of magnitude too small. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, we put, so there's, there's Indiana Solar for All, I believe is the name of the program. Yeah. Um, and they did eight low-income families last year and they're set to do 12 this year. We need hundreds. I think between that and the mass purchase, the wholesale purchase that the city did uh, through Solarize Bloomington, we put maybe six megawatts of solar electricity on the grid. Mm -hmm. We need 404 megawatts by 2030. Yikes. So the last four years we did six. The next 10, we need to do 400. It's like starting from scratch almost. Yeah. It's overwhelming. But so we, you know, but you, you can't let that stop you. We've got to just do as much as we can and then cross our fingers that we get something like a Green New Deal that pours money into this. So if we set up the program now, put as much money as we can afford to into it, get it working so the wheels are turning, then if we get something like a Green New Deal and we suddenly get this massive inflow of cash to get this done, we pump it right into the program and the program suddenly scales up. Mm -hmm. we'll, have the, we'll have the infrastructure in place and we can just not miss a beat. Just pour the cash in and pump the panels out. Now, I happen to recall you advocating on a very local level a couple of years ago mm -hmm. in your neighborhood, JB's Salvage wanted to put up a recycling transfer station yeah. in your neighborhood. Mm -hmm. You could almost see it from your house. I can. I hear them all day, every day. Because they're there. They're, uh, that's the they are in my backyard. But they were going to add another facility Mm -hmm. You fought against that. I did. I'm not against having a recycling facility in my backyard. I was against them running it 
because they have not been good neighbors. Uh-huh. They are grandfathered in, and IDEM doesn't really watch them. So they're sort of doing their own regulation, and they're not doing a good job. Hmm. In 2011, when the Dandelion Village property was purchased, they did uh, an environmental study of that property. Yeah. Uh, because they were worried about PCBs, Lemon Lane landfills right there. Right. Um, they didn't find PCBs, but there's an outlet pipe from JB Salvage onto that property. Huh. And right by that outlet pipe, they found about 200, mil, uh, 200 parts per billion of lead. Lead? Mm-hmm. That isn't good. No. It doesn't take, I mean, they've basically, new research shows there's no safe level of lead exposure. Right. It, it's just not, it, it is an extremely dangerous pollutant, and it's really hard to get out of the soil once it's in. Well, it that was, station did not go online. No, we... There was bad PR. And we fought it. I mean... You consider that a victory? Yes. Mm-hmm. But I wouldn't gloat about it. it it's, it's one of those things that I can see both sides of it. Where, you know, JB Salvage is a locally owned company. They do provide jobs. It is a family business. You know, we need more recycling, although the recycling market at this point is basically pumping into the landfill because China stopped accepting it. Like, we're not really processing it at this point. Right. But they just, you know, I would need – they're right in – like, Crestmont's right up the hill from them. Waterman's right there. It's one of the lowest-income neighborhoods in the city. And their effluent is dumping lead – out that, that that neighborhood floods from multiple outlets that come off that property. And what they're allowing to run off their property are harmful, hazardous, heavy metals and pollutants that are polluting one of the lowest income neighborhoods in the city. Can and that be remediated? Uh, potentially, but remediate, I mean, you basically just have to rip out the dirt, yeah. which is expensive and difficult and destructive. Right. And um, what do they do with that outlet pipe? To my knowledge, nothing has been done yet. What can they do? I don't, I mean, they could do things. They, they, one of the things they could do, and one of the, if they weren't grandfathered, one of the things they would be forced to do would be to lay down, I think, basically a plastic sheet underneath their entire property to uh-huh. catch all the runoff. You know, they could be made to basically deal with and clean their own runoff water and not just allow it to run off into the neighborhoods around them. Right. But it's, it's one of these things where, Industrial sites like that are typically allowed to persist in residential areas when those residential areas are low income. Right. Their presence also often helps keep those areas low income. But yep. it's, a vicious ma- it's a vicious circle. You're making low income people deal with the pollution, deal with the noise, deal with the, you know, carrying on consequences of the pollution. I mean, lead, when it gets into your system, it does a lot of damage mm-hmm. to all manner of things. And that's a, it's a tangled one. We won that one, and I'm glad we did. But, I mean, we we showed up. We spoke. I think we had an impact, we being the various people in the neighborhood. We've run out of time, so join us Monday for Big Talk Extra during the 5 p.m. Daily Local News for more of this conversation. Daniel Bingham, candidate for city council, District 2 seat. He's running against incumbent Dorothy Granger, as well as Sue Scambaluri in the Democratic primary. And whoever wins that is going to go up against the Republican Andrew Gunther in the November election. 
The primary is the first Tuesday in May. Daniel, thanks for being on Big Talk. Thanks for having me.